I'm Nick Abrahams, and welcome to Web3, From Mystery to Main Street, the podcast where we talk about how technologies like crypto, DeFi, NFTs, and the metaverse are being successfully embraced by mainstream businesses. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. And this week, I am delighted uh, to have the opportunity to showcase really my home state and a state that I'm very proud of in terms of the way our government has really focused on becoming a world leader in what's known as citizen-centric government. And so joining me today is the Honourable Victor Dominello. Minister, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. Now, Minister, you have a wealth of, uh, of portfolio responsibilities. You're, you're the member for RIDE. You're the Minister for Customer Service and Digital Government, Minister for Small Business, and also the Minister for Fair Trading. Uh, not a lot of spare hours in that day, by the sounds of things. Uh, not at the moment, not when Parliament's sitting in particular. It's a full brief. <laughs> Very good. Well, look, thank you. As, as you know, I've been a, a big fan of what you have done and what your government has done over years to really focus in on, on citizen-centric government and also how technology can help us. But maybe could you just give us your, I guess, philosophy around the role of government and particularly as Minister for Customer Service? Well, the philosophy stems in a in an analogy or a metaphor. It's, it's in relation to the solar system. You know, governments are normally the centre of that solar system. They're normally the sun. And we expect people to evolve and revolve around us. Uh, and when I say us, we've got lots of moving parts in, in, uh, in the sun, lots of agencies inside there. And that's not, uh, that's not you know, customer-centric. It's, it's, in fact, a very bad experience because it means that people have to move and allocate their time, their precious, precious time around the, you know, the machinations of government. What we try to do with Department of Customer Service and then therefore more broadly in government is to flip the equation so that governments and their agencies evolve and revolve around the customer, around the individual. And that's really been the heart of the journey now, really since we started Service New South Wales in 2013, but we really accelerated that uh, when we launched the digital driver's licence and then the Department of Customer Service in 2019 and then a hyper-acceleration throughout COVID. Yeah. Well, fantastic. The, um, you know, you've always been a big promoter of technology and the opportunities for technology to help us. And I know we hear a lot of negative about uh, technology, but I mean, you touched briefly there on digital driver's licence, but you know, could you talk a little bit about some of the successes that um, that you've had in terms of the application of technology to make sort of citizens' lives easier? Well, obviously, the digital driver's license is the thing that most people will visualise. Seventy-five yeah. percent option so far, which is just extraordinary. Uh, on the back of that platform, we you know, we designed big, built small. Uh, so, on the back of digital driver's license, we uh, quickly pivoted in the pandemic to the QR check-ins. And again, that, that was a really important feature to guide us through the pandemic, high success rate there. Uh, we again pivoted on that platform to issue uh, Dine Discover vouchers and a whole yeah. lot of other vouchers, which other governments were saying, spend the money, give us your receipts, make an application, we'll right. give you the check in the mail. We were essentially having digital currency through QR code, which to my knowledge has never been done before, which, but again, extraordinary uptake. Um, 
even before that, we we just I was in Parliament the other day, basically doing a review of the uh, com- comprehensive third party insurance CTP green slips. That was basically a data piece, uh, and we launched that in 2017, 2018, and. What we've seen is uh, super profits, insurer super profits, come back down to where they should be because it's a, you know, a mandatory scheme. Uh, we've seen premiums come down uh, to levels we haven't seen for 10 years. So the, this is an example of using data, digital, and, and customer-centric policy settings to really drive profound outcomes. Yeah, I got to say that the CTP, we you know we all experience that. It was you know such a rare situation where. You know, to see your insurance uh, premiums go down. Okay. Yeah, we don't we don't see that. So uh, it defies insurance gravity, where it, normally <laughs> everything goes up. Yeah, uh, but for it to come down, it, it was a yeah. Reflecting on it over five years, it's it's good to see that uh, the the principles work. Yeah, yeah, and I got to say, with vouchers too, it it seemed like you know it was a pretty. Well, it was just an odd time during COVID, but to see those vouchers sort of pop in to uh, into the app and and to have it work seamlessly, frankly, yeah. and you know, the fact that you know I've got you know parents and so forth who who were you know able to use those uh, simply. That's you know, and that that's obviously where the proof is, isn't it? That it yeah. it actually works when you pull it out and and you find find it on the app and it actually works. So and 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 you're right. Uh... Nick, that, that's the magic, you know, to have a seamless experience. Like even now, you know, I see uh, beaters come to me all the time in relation to ideas and I'll try it out. And I say, well, hold it, that's taking me two minutes. And like two minutes is two minutes, but I'm thinking that's not a great experience. Unless it's a, it's truly a great experience, I'm not going to use it again. Yeah. And that's where government's got to get their head space in. Uh, it's got to be in making a seamless experience with a whole lot of trust built around it. Yeah, yeah. We see that, you know, in private enterprise, we see everything's focused on the user experience, the user journey, and that's the sort of sort of language that we hear coming out of New South Wales government. And I guess if we look at those tremendous innovations that you've had, and, I mean, you've only named, uh, you know, a few of them, there's there's plenty more, you know, the Strata Hub portal and Fires near me app and so forth, and the, the disability Fuel parking. Fuel yeah. Yeah, fuel fuel check was a great one. I'm, I'm sure that I'm sure the oil companies weren't weren't super enthusiastic. They weren't happy about it. No, no, I, I had to legislate to get that through. But hey, now every time you watch TV, uh, when they're talking about petrol prices in real time, they are using the data from fuel check. It's, it's such a great. So can, can you just explain that in case there are folks um, from outside New South Wales who haven't had the the benefit of of fuel check? So basically, the idea came from when I was at university, I was, I was driving my little Suzuki Sierra. I was driving up Victoria Road. I couldn't afford the uh, much petrol. Yeah. So I'd be going from petrol station to petrol station to petrol station. And I was thinking, and every time I was thinking, oh, it's going to be cheaper down right. the road. <laughs> right. Where do I Where do I bet? Yeah. Where do I bet? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, uh, fuel check poker type thing. Anyway, so I thought one day, wouldn't it be good to have all this in real time on a phone, on an app? There were some apps out there that did crowdsourcing, but that wasn't reliable because it means that you had to get uh, a saturation that was never going to happen. Anyway, fast forward, become the Minister of Fair Trading many years ago, I, and I asked, why don't we get real-time information, i.e., every time you change the petrol price on the street, you have to do that by law, 
because otherwise you're going to get traffic everywhere. Um, why don't you also do it online? Uh, and that way, create a data source. We get open up for the world to see and other other people use. Had to legislate to to require petrol stations to to give me their price in real time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And to be honest, before the legislation, you wouldn't believe this. I, I asked Fair Trading at the time, "How many petrol stations do we have?" Oh, I don't know, Minister. It's about two thousand, two thousand two hundred. What do you mean you don't know? You're the regulator. There wasn't even a central database for petrol stations. So anyway, so fast forward, we've now got uh, fuel check over two point one million downloads. Fantastic! No, it's it's so good. Uh, the so so those sorts of innovations are. Um, I mean, it's hard to innovate within you know within private enterprise. And I think you know there there well there used to be perhaps suggestions that. You know, governments aren't very good at changing or responding to requirements to change, but you've achieved some extraordinary innovations. So just for, for those of us that sort of have to look after innovation within large organisations, do you have any sort of rules that you go by? How do, how do you achieve within, you know, a, a big organisation? How, how do you get gravity and support and success with innovation? I think the, well, A, it's, not me. It's a. It's a. I'm part of a, a great team, and you know, I, I pay compliment to the the, the team. Um, but generally speaking, it's for me. It's about getting a license to do the risk, as you've defined. Because you're right. You know, politicians hate risk. Uh, they they want to be at the front of a school cutting ribbon, say how great that school was. No politician wants to be in front of a disaster or a fire. Right. Uh, yeah, because they just don't like it. They're risk averse. So the way you de-risk new ideas, innovations, in my mind, is through pilots. Uh, and we did that through the digital uh, driver's licence. I think we did about four or five pilots before we took it to market because that was so risky in the sense that if we stuffed up digital identity, which you know, which this was in many ways, uh, then it would be horrific for our future roadmap. Uh, same with Dime Discover Vouchers, same with everything we do. Like I, I really encourage the pilots because it creates that authorising environment with the public to say, look, this is not going to be perfect, but we're going to try it uh, and everyone will have their eyes wide open, we'll do the, the reviews on it, et cetera, et cetera, but we need to try it because uh, there's a greater risk if we don't try. Yeah. And in terms of the terminology and I guess the process, I mean, do does the team talk about minimum viable product and iterative? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. okay. Absolutely. Like, I, I unashamedly say that I, I, I'm fortunate. I've got the largest startup in, in the country <laughs> in my true. agency. Uh, honestly, I, I throw thought bubbles at them and normally I'm used to, I'm used to government agencies saying no, not, there's no such thing as yes, minister, no minister. No, Minister, that can't happen. No, no, no. <laughs> I am so lucky with my agency. I'll give them a thought bubble and they'll do a, you know, a quick sprint, turn around, and they'll come back to me in two weeks and actually say, yeah, that is doable. Yeah, they, I'm so proud that in their mindset they look at how to do things, not rather how not to do things, and that's just a phenomenal culture change. Yeah, no, you've got some great people with some great mindsets oh, I, in that organisation. There's, there's no yeah, doubt. Love them. I mean, love all them. the way down, frankly, to to the folks on the counter at Service New South Wales. You know, I was I was in there oh. not long ago, and you know, there was something something wasn't quite right. I can't remember. You know, it's a detail, 
And rather than just going, eh, you know, computer says no, the person who was serving me said, hang on a minute, and went and chatted to someone else. They're like, oh, we could do it this way. It was just like, oh, you know, actually looking for a way to help was fantastic. Oh, I love it. And if you want a source of inspiration, go to the people on the front line at the Service right. New Files that are exactly as you said, Nick, looking at ways to say yes, not uh, the easy no. Yeah. And, and that is such a change in the way government thinks. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. So, I mean, as uh, as you know, this is we talk about uh, Web three going mainstream on this podcast, and I know you know you're a you're a great lover of all things technology, and we've we've had a technology blockchain around for a while, sort of since yeah. Bitcoin came out you know, over a decade ago. It sort of struggled a bit to to find a spot. I mean, where do you see sort of blockchain? I know there's been some some sort of uh, work done by the New South Wales government. But where do, where do you see blockchain fitting into government? Oh, it's already starting to fit in, in the sense that we've got David Chandler, who he's the building commissioner. I'm a big fan of David. Like, I remember the very first meeting in our office, he was he came in, he was talking data, I said, and he was trying to give me his uh, roadmap and trying to explain to me how data and digital works. And I said, David, you have me a low. Like, you know, because it's rare inside of government to find people that, that understand uh, this space. Anyway, David, to his eternal credit, uh, has set up the uh, Building Trust Indicator. Now, that is based on blockchain technology. So we will be able to look at a building in the not-too-distant future and, more importantly, see its parts as it evolves. And, and again, uh, that is going to be critical to government. I, so I, I read recently that the last few decades have been all about knowing your customer. I think the decade ahead and maybe a couple of decades ahead will be more about knowing your supplier. Right. And, again, that supply chain, I think a lot of that will be built on blockchain technology, particularly the further out it goes. Uh, you know, the, the further the distance, the less the trust. But if you're using blockchain to build that piece uh, from X to source, uh, then I think you'll have a lot more trust in, in the supply. Yeah, it's certainly, you know, if you look at where blockchain has worked well, you know, probably less well, frankly, in financial services and payments and so forth because of the, the timing and, and how it validates transactions, but certainly in provenance and, yeah. and you know, being able to track back through the supply chain, it feels like uh, there's real value there. Yeah, I mean, I agree, the, the building trust indicator. You know, it's, what's interesting is this is information that exists. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's out there. It's just a matter of... How could we record it and then, you know, digital twin it effectively so so you can see exactly what's going on underneath the covers? Yeah, and we need, we definitely need that. And to your point around Providence, like think about the, the cladding challenges that we had and, and the catastrophic impact that that, uh, that will occur if it fails. Uh, so we governments increasingly need to invest and explore more options in blockchain uh, moving forward. There's no doubt about that in my mind. Yeah, no, terrific. And then, of course, as a, a subject gets quite a lot of airplay. I'm not, I'm not sure sort of, you know, exactly where it fits, but the metaverse. And, uh, you know, it's talked about uh, a lot. And um, I'm just interested, do you have a sort of view on exactly, you know, what is the metaverse and what do you think the opportunities might be there? Yeah, well, I, you know, I've got Oculus 2, I've got Quest, uh, and I, I, I jump into that, and uh, and it's like it is amazing. And I, I don't even have a, a, a haptic suit 
Imagine right. when that comes into play. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like it will go to an, another level again. It's it really does, uh, and I, I imagine uh, most of your listeners would have had some dealings in the metaverse, but it, just twenty minutes in the metaverse, and it's a, it's almost surreal. Yeah, uh, you take the you, you you take the goggles off, and you think, oh, oh my god, where where have I been? Yeah. Um, and again, uh, that is just going to be m- more and more. Uh, ubiquitous in yeah, as in the next 10 to 15 years, I imagine. But if you listen to Tim Cook, he's not really into that. He thinks it's all going to be augmented reality uh, more than metaverse. But I, I, I really think that there will be a significant segment uh, in, in government play in the metaverse. And I don't think right now, but maybe in the back end of this decade, we're going to see a lot more use case of it. And, for example, it could be in relation to uh, service delivery, uh, yeah. hypothetically, um, if people feel comfortable using their avatars in the metaverse for whatever reason, uh, it could be geographic reason, it could be a personality reason, whatever, um, they might want to uh, have service delivery channels through the metaverse. And again, we governments should be inclusive. Uh, if people want paper channels, that's fine. If people want standard digital channels, that's fine. If people want metaverse channels. That's fine. So we need to make sure that we evolve to be inclusive and in our service delivery. So I see the metaverse having a play there. Equally, I, we must have guardrails around the metaverse yeah. because there's. Um, I don't think we've framed up enough safety in there yet. And I've, I've been speaking to Katrina Wallace, who's doing yeah. outstanding work, in, in, in and she's literally preparing a paper for me. I'm hoping to get it next week. Right. Okay. Oh, good. So we might hear some more about that. I, I think that's right. I mean, you look at places like South Korea, obviously, sort of yeah. in terms of government services uh, through the metaverse. It feels like there'll be a natural pull through of that as as you see, you know, more people. I, mean, I think, you know, the, the right at the moment, and I know metaverse sort of zealots out there will hate me for saying this, um, as they always do on um, on social media, but you know, effectively, gamers are, you know, that, yeah. that's the experience, you know, that Im- that truly immersive experience where you can be in-game for two to three hours and not really sense that, you know, you want to be out of it. Or so. Yeah, right. But you can see the applications, you know, in pretty much every life experience. Yeah. Uh, you can interplay in the metaverse and, and, and create something uh, on another level altogether. But, but again, um, I, I remember Katrina telling me about the uh, the case. I think it was in New York, uh, where some poor young lady was so attached to her avatar, her avatar uh, was assaulted, and because she was so attached to it. And, and if you've been in the metaverse, you can see how you you can um, it's hard to disassociate mm. from that character. Uh, and so the avatar got assaulted. Therefore, she got assaulted. Right. Right. And there was a court case around that. So that's why we really need to, um, you know, regulate or prepare the rules of engagement. Another thing that is absolutely critical in the metaverse is identity. Now, I spoke to some young uh, kids the other day about the metaverse and, and identity and the like, and it was and it was mixed. The the the, the answers I got back were mixed. Some were saying we we want to be completely anonymous. Uh, in the in the metaverse, but you know we we don't want uh, identity. But the other half was saying, you know what, yeah, we can create an avatar with all the anonymity that's attached, but ultimately that avatar needs to be rooted in identity, right. so that uh, if there is a problem, there can be recourse. 
Yeah, it is interesting to see there's there's sort of these these streams of belief around people who who want to behave without identification and so forth and true decentralization. And yet, you know, what we've seen, particularly with sort of the DeFi explosion, where, where things have, you know, a number of those protocols have fallen apart and people then want to start suing other people. Yeah. So it's like, so, so everyone likes the idea of no identity until, you know, you, you need to chase down some money that you're owed. So, so I think we, you know, ultimately it feels like we have to come back uh, to identity. And frankly, I don't think governments can afford to allow people to operate in unidentified ways. Well, well, uh, there are lots of organisations uh, that uh, operate in uh, in the shadows, and they're normally called, you know, crime gangs. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, so we governments need to provide trusted environments, uh, so for the good players to operate in, uh, because the bad players operate in the shadows. We know that. Yeah. Now you've you've said that digital without cybersecurity is like driving without a seatbelt, uh, which which I've uh, I, I must say I've taken uh, I, I must have I might have used that uh, minister apologies but I I have given credit it. but um, but it is you know and and right at the moment obviously we've seen you know a number of uh, significant organisations be attacked with ransomware. Yeah. You know, this is this is like the problem of our age from from my point of view in terms of, you know, just what I'm seeing and the damage. But so what is government's responsibility for the cybersecurity of the citizen? Oh, it's it's absolutely uh, central. Like obviously we uh, need to work in partnership with uh, industry and academia, but ultimately we create the laws and the regulations that frame a whole lot of this up. So, uh, we, for example, in New South Wales, we put $315 million into uh, cyber. Uh, we created cybersecurity in New South Wales. Um, we've just, I've just came back from the Valley in, um, in May and I got some high-level briefings there and I was so disturbed by what I saw. I said to Greg Wells and Tony Chapman and the team, I said, you know, what, what's next? Like we talk about essential aid all the time in the cyber world, but what's next? What's beyond essential aid? So we've now created a cyber series. We're up to, uh, I just did the 5th of 6th this morning, and today we were talking about um, vulnerability disclosure. You know, so often you, the, the arguably your greatest strength is A, understanding your weakness and then Moreover, be disclosing that weakness. You know, that's that's a demonstration of strength. And we need to start understanding that a lot more and unpacking that a lot more in, in our cyber environment because whether it's Optus yesterday, uh, Medibank today, uh, or somebody else tomorrow, it's going to constantly happen. The thing that we've learned in New South Wales, uh, and, and I'm really proud of it, is we've created um, uh, re resilience New South Wales at a broader level, yeah. but in a cyber sense, uh, it's ID uh, support. And ID support uh, basically helps you get back on your feet as soon as humanly possible. Uh, so it's one thing to stop the attack, but we've got to assume there will be attacks. What happens when you do fall over? How do you get back up really fast? So, you know, governments have a big role to play in all of those areas. Yeah. It is interesting. I was speaking to um, uh, an Israeli politician who is talking about, you know, in Israel, 
the government sees cybersecurity in the same way they see personal security, both, you know, being safe on the streets and also, you know, from a defence force point of view, being being safe from attack from other nations. So they, they sort of put it on the same level and it sort of feels like that's where it, you know, sort of needs to needs to be. I mean, there's only so far obviously government can take that. But um, and in the Israeli case, they're sort of, you know, they are doing a lot more surveillance of networks and so forth, yeah. which probably triggers, you know, some issues that, that you know, people might not be too excited about. Well, what's, what's the number one crime? The fastest growing crime by any measure, you speak to any cop, any local uh, police district, they'll tell you it's cyber. Right, right. And by a country mile. Yeah. It is it's so pervasive these days. Yeah. Well, now, um, I guess just... Uh, just some exciting projects. I know you've got you've got a couple on the go. Are there uh, are there any that you can uh, you can tell us a little bit about? Yeah. Well, very very soon. I, I want to I push the the boat out uh, from the dock into the into the harbour uh, in relation to digital identity. Great. But from a Web three uh, design architecture. So, you know, I've been closely following what uh, Sir Tim Berners Lee's been doing. In relation to Web three principles about self sovereign identity and the like, you know, he's he's creating the pod uh, and solid technology. But ours is very similarly framed, where the individual needs to own their identity. They need to be in control of of what parts of their personal information they share. The classic example is: I hire a car, I need to give them my a copy of my driver's license. But on my driver's license, they why do they have my wet signature or a copy thereof. Yep. Need a wet signature to start with. That's another topic. Uh, but why do they need my address? Why do they need my date of birth? Why, why do they need all this information on that plastic card? All they need to know is that I'm that I'm real. I'm not a bot, and I'm yep. authorized to drive in New South Wales. Yeah. You know, so digital identity will enable me to go and hire a car online, so I don't have to go there and give them a copy of my driver's license. Hire a car online. And only share with them two bits of information. Tick, he's allowed to drive. Tick, he's real. Yeah. Happy days. That's where we need to move. Yeah. And, I mean, it, it, that is sort of the promise sort of, of blockchain technology that, that, we can, that we can actually own our own data. And then, you know, that in some respects helps to solve at least partly the cybersecurity issue because... Uh, you know the the problem that we have is that organisations are uh, sitting on too much data, and and really that that's caused because storage is so cheap. So everyone just keeps and doesn't purge, thinking they might use it in the future, or you know maybe they just don't even think that. Uh, but but the idea that you know people don't or organisations don't necessarily need to hold that data; they just need it for validation. Once they're validated, we should be good to go. Well, I, you know, I've, I've said before that you know, data in the past was hot property. Uh, now it's more like a hot potato uh, because if, if, I think if you hold on to it too long uh, and without you know reasonable grounds, you're going to get burnt if there is a data breach. And, yeah. and so I think corporations are starting to rethink uh, this uh, data harvesting model and say, what do I actually need? And, and more importantly, where do I store it and what's the format? Because we've seen with Optus and we've seen with a lot of other companies increasingly, a significant data breach will put the company back two or three years. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I love that from uh, from hot property or hot potato. I may need to take that one out uh, as well for a spin. <laughs> but mate, but if you but you go to the next stage, so you're not passing uh, it on. Yeah, like a hot potato, you're passing it back. Yeah, yeah. Oh, good one. Yeah, yeah. No, it's true. It's true. It's sort of you know people talking about the uh, uh, you know data is the new oil, but it's sort of the the new sort of oil disaster. Um, yes, it, absolutely. If it is not, if, well, it is. Like the reality is if we don't put appropriate safety measures around it, it can be a disaster. Like I've seen firsthand what happens when you lose your identity. Right. Uh, from a digital perspective, you're pretty much stopped from a whole lot of service delivery. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, to get your identity when you've lost your identity is a nightmare. And it can take months and months and months of trauma. Yeah, yeah. No, well, look, that's all incredibly exciting. I'm particularly excited about the digital identity stuff. I, you know, obviously we've we've seen some bits and pieces around that as a potential idea in the digital birth certificate and so forth. So, uh, so we very much look forward to that. And I'm, I am conscious you are retiring uh, from politics at the next election, which I'm. Which I am personally very sad about because you know I, I think you've done a, an amazing job and, and oh, so thanks. thank you, um, you know. And I know there's a lot of people out there who are very grateful for the work that you've done to to really look after sort of New South Wales citizens. But you know, I guess maybe just and I know you're not you know you've still got many months left before you uh, before you actually retire. But just a you know a commentary on the state of politics and and you know do you. Do you leave sort of despairing for for the way politics has turned, or are you, uh, you know, more positive? It's a really good question. Like I was in, um, I was at that cyber series this morning, and somebody came up with the term democratic resilience, oh, and and yeah. I thought I hadn't heard of that, but it's it's exactly uh, the this the space where I think we need to be, and that's why that digital identity uh, where individuals control their data. Is about building resilience. You know, if you think about the the foundation of a democracy is, uh, or the single unit of a democracy is the individual. In an autocracy, it's the state. Right. Uh, so, how do we empower the individual more so that they can operate in a democracy? Well, in the digital age, you empower that individual with more control of their of their data, essentially. Uh, so I think we're at a, really at a, a fork in the road. If we can, if we can move down this digital identity where uh, people are in more control of their data, their their choices, their settings, then I think that empowers our democracy uh, because then that, they will then move to places that are more transparent, right. uh, be able to give more feedback, and be able to have a stronger voice not a bot voice and a real voice that people say, no, this is a trusted environment. I trust uh, that the feedback here are real people with real problems, with real challenges. So I, I think we're at that fork in the road. That's why that digital identity piece, if we get it right, moves us forward. If we get it wrong, uh, yeah, we're in a bit of pain. <laughs> yeah. And do you think, just uh, just funny, do you think we'll see, that at least in pilot before you uh, retire. Yeah, that that look that is my eternal hope that right. uh, by the twenty eighth of February, uh, I've been assured. Uh, but uh, again, I'm not putting too much pressure on the agency. But we'll at least <laughs> oh, I can imagine. Other uh, than just naming the date, <laughs> I just I just talk to them every day about where we're up. 
Uh, in fact, uh, I, I, I joke with Lenka, who's, who's running the team, yeah. I say, uh, Lenka, uh, you've heard of the band Nirvana. Uh, well, you know, on the 28th of February, there's going to be two songs that we're either going to play. One is uh, something, something in the way, i.e. <laughs> yeah. it didn't happen, yeah. it was blocked, or come as you are. Right. The digital identity is you've owned it. You know, people were in control of who they are. So uh, we'll find out what songs gets played on Twitter. But look, we, we're going to have some very small closed pilots uh, between now and February, and I'll right. speak more about that then. But we can't go too broad yet because yeah. we need a legislative framework in place yeah. because before we go business to business and open this up for the broader ecosystem, we need the rules of engagement. So all we're going to do is very small closed pilots to, to make sure the tech works then it will be for the next minister, the next government to, to whack the ledge in place uh, and then hopefully move forward then. And I'll be a cheerleader on the side like some, you know, a lot of people on this call have. Yeah, oh, I'm sure. No. Well, look, thank you very much. You've been very grateful. Uh, you've, been, you've been very gracious with your time. Really appreciate that. Uh, minister Dominello, thank you very much. Good you, Nick. Thanks again. Thanks for listening to Web3 from Mystery to Main Street. Nothing in this podcast is legal or financial advice. Have a great day. And remember, every organisation needs a Web3 strategy.